So we're going to talk tonight a little bit about what exercise is and how exercise affects people who are over fat. There's a lot of myths and misconceptions out there about what exercise is and what exercise isn't and what impact being over fat is and how over fat is different than being obese because they're two distinct categories of events. So <clears throat> just to give you a little bit overview of what we're going to look at, first we're going to talk about why we do the the reviews that, we're that I'm going to present, which is what are referred to as systematic reviews, and why we do the analysis in the systematic reviews that I'm going to present, which are called meta-analytical analysis. <clears throat> and then we're going to get into the nuts and bolts of what the issues are. What is the issue with being over fat? What are the health issues of being over fat? What's the theoretical impact that exercise has in terms of reversing those health issues of being over fat? And then we're going to take a look at what does the research actually show. Because what the research actually shows is not what we normally talk about. And the reason why we don't normally talk about it is because of this. The way in which we pick up scientific stories is based off of a nice little flowchart, where we find something in the lab, the PR people at the universities present out this nice little PR press about what was found, then it gets conflated within the internet sources, gets picked up eventually by the news, and eventually gets picked up by your family. That doesn't actually show what we actually showed in the lab, but it shows all the complication of what goes on. And the principal reason for this is because we don't look at what is the strongest level of evidence for the phenomenons that, we're, that we want to look at. When you talk to people in most health and or medical professions, they basically draw studies off of these three different layers of scientific evidence. Either the personal stories, in my humble opinion, or this is what worked for me, or they look at single case reports or single case studies where the physician had a patient do treatment X and then they write up what happened to patient when they did treatment X, or they talk about cohort studies where they basically cluster two different types of groups and see who responds and who doesn't respond. Most of the reports that come out about people who are over fat or people who are obese are actually cohort studies. And they're not cohort studies to other obese people, they're cohort studies to people who are not obese or not over fat. And the problem is that people who are not over fat do not respond the same way as people who are over fat. So that takes us into what we're going to talk about tonight, which is the systematic and meta-analytical meta reviews. What they do is they actually provide us the greatest level of insight into the phenomenon. They do this because it allows us to have an inferential analysis of overall all of the data that's out there. It allows us to follow an inductive pattern of reasoning as opposed to a deductive pattern of reasoning to formulate our comprehensive theory. The best thing it does is it provides us an established evidence-based model to further follow for treatment effects because we have an evidence based off of a standardized normal curve because now we no longer have a selective population that we have with the cohort studies. We now look at a non-selective population because now we're drawing from multiple studies that may or may not have the same similar type of population or have the same similar type of treatment. So, what is the issues of overfatness? Why do we have to worry about it? <clears throat> When I'm talking about this, I'm not talking about obesity. Obesity is a completely different, different animal. Obesity, by, <clears throat> by numetric analysis, is related to BMI indexes and relationship of BMI indexes or relationship of body mass relative to your height stature. Most of the reporting on incidence rates 
do not report over fatness because a person can be over fat but not be obese. And a person can be obese but not be over fat. When we're talking about over fatness, we're talking about the impact that excess body fat, in particular visceral body fat, has on normal physiological responses. <clears throat> no pun intended, there's a growing population of at risk for developing issues of over fatness. It's been exponentially growing over the last 20 years. This is the latest data coming out of the CDC. They're still compiling last year's data. It should come out probably in 2016. <clears throat> Where, as you notice, there is no state within the country that has less than 20% of the population that would be classified as being obese. There was an early report in 2013 that said that the rate of incident had plateaued, but it was an early report, and when they actually went back and looked at the data, there was no plateau whatsoever. Not only is there no plateau, there's still an exponential growth that seems to be occurring across all ages, across all demographics, and across all socioeconomic groups. It used to be talked about as being a, a poor person issue because of nutritional stuff. It used to be talked about being a rural issue because of not access to other things that happen in the urban setting. But we're seeing it across all ages, we're seeing it across all demographics, and we're seeing it across all socioeconomic groups. The major issues here within overfatness are cardiovascular diseases, metabolic syndromes, and cancers. Cancers is a, is a very difficult beast to narrow down a specific cause, and so we're going to ignore that. We're going to talk specifically about cardiovascular issues, and we're going to talk specifically about metabolic issues. The, when you talk about metabolic issues, there's two distinct things that you need to talk about. <clears throat> Most people talk about metabolic issues this way, in terms of diabetic conditions. This is the percent of, of type 2 diabetes within the population by state. And once again, you can note that there is a continual rise based off of percent of the population that has type 2 diabetes diagnosed. But metabolic syndrome is more than just type 2 diabetes. In fact, type 2 diabetes is the end product of metabolic syndrome. And metabolic syndrome actually starts with this right here, dyslipidemia. Dyslipidemia is having too much lipid within the bloodstream, in particular high levels of cholesterol or high levels of triglyceride. It's the high levels of triglycerides and the high levels of cholesterol that have <coughs> impacts later on in the metabolism that eventually leads to the diabetic issues. In between diabetes and cardiovascular disease, as you know here, this is the ideal population in terms of percent that we should see this is what we see within the population as a whole. It's a, somewhere between a two and a half to four-fold increase above the ideal population for cardiovascular disease. Most of the cardiovascular disease and most of the diabetic issues are linked to changes in physical activity more than changes in dietary and nutritional status. The Government Accounting Office in 2011 stated that there's somewhere between 50 and 100 billion dollars spent annually to combat every type of health issue that's been associated with overfatness. So what are the health issues that we have to worry about? When we usually talk about issues with obesity or issues with overfatness, we usually throw up this scale here the calorie in to calorie out scale. Everybody's seen this before, right? Where if you have too much of this and not enough of that, what can happen? You become obese. 
you don't necessarily become over fat. Because if I want to put on muscle mass, if I want to put on fat-free mass, I still have to have more calories in than I have calories out. The problem with doing with this is that you don't look at it in terms of what is the health aspect of it, or what is what we talk about as health status. Health status is more related to the issues of fatness and fitness, where fatness is looking at what are the hormones being sent out by fat cells or cells associated with fat cells versus what are the hormone changes as I change my health or fitness behaviors. If I swing towards the fatness scale, I become unhealthy or swing towards a diseased state, whereas if I go towards the fitness side, I become more healthy or go towards a non-diseased state. The problem is it's a complex beast. It's a complex beast because there are multiple cogs all spinning at the same time trying to eventually get to this output of overall health where we have familial influences such as what do I have in terms of family biases towards eating? What do I have in terms of family biases towards meal times? What do I have towards family biases in terms of physical activity? The physical activity thing for, for a lot of immigrant populations within the United States is a gender-specific issue, which is why we see more metabolic issues occurring in females than in males of immigrant populations. What are the environmental influences? Do I have access to things? Do I have access to parks? Do I have access to exercise areas? Do I have access to gyms? Do I know where the markets are? Or am I going to be stuck eating McDonald's and fast food and not doing anything but that? What are the hormonal influences that are going on? <clears throat> Things like your anabolic hormones, testosterone, growth hormone, IGF, MGF, your inflammatory hormones, TNF-alpha, CRP, IL-6, IL-1, IL-2. What are the genetic influences? What genes are coding for receptors? What genes are coding for hormones? All of these influence the physiological and the sociological factors. The physiological and sociological factors combine to give us our body morphology and our health behaviors. <clears throat> the body morphology and the health behavior appear to be a self-selected behavioral link. Meaning, if I have some sort of body morphology, I'm going to self-select towards a distinct health behavior. All of this leads to the overall health output. And it goes like this. This is the complex web of network leading to the overall <coughs> change in health status. The principal thing that everybody talks about is that high dietary intake. But the thing is that this high dietary intake only has one link into it. And that one link is that. Whereas activity has multiple links into the cascade of events. This whole cascade of events <coughs> is based off of what we refer to as the upper regulatory elements of response. The upper regulatory elements of response is governing how does the body respond to various physiological stimuli. <coughs> and it starts with these components. These are the uppermost upper regulatory elements. We have the exercise stimulus or the activity stimulus. We have the nutrition stimulus, we have the gender and age stimulus, we have the adiposity stimulus, and we have the psychological stimulus. Out of all of those, the ones we cannot do anything about are the gender and age stimulus. Because physiological response changes between genders, and it changes as you age. 
we can do a little bit about the psychological thing, but not too much. Because that psychological thing will directly affect the exercise thing. And it has to do with that self-selection or self-appeasement for exercise. A lot of times what happens, and this is one of the things that I was talking with, with Pam about earlier, there's a lot of research that went in when the Obamas came into office and Michelle Obama did the everybody move or let's get moving. But the problem is, is that the whole program was about the kids simply getting up and being active. The problem is, is that a lot of the overfat kids don't like doing the activities that they're being forced to do. And anybody who has a little kid or anybody who remembers being a little kid, if you were forced to do something, you were less likely to do it by yourself. And the problem is, is that when I do not have a psychological appeasement to the exercise stimulus, I stop doing the exercise stimulus. <clears throat> what that does is that leads to a lower level of physical activity. The lower level of physical activity couples with a poor nutrition <clears throat> and a rise in adiposity, which feeds downwards within all of the various levels of the organism, eventually getting to the cellular responses. In the cellular responses, we have a distinct change in hormone production and hormone response, where we get a reduction in our anabolic hormones, we get a reduction in the receptors for those anabolic hormones, and in the blood, we see more binding proteins, more proteins that hold on to those hormones, so the hormones cannot interact with the cells than what should be there. All of this leads to an anabolic dysregulation, overfatness is an anabolic dysregulation disease. Anabolic dysregulation is where we do not have proper response to the anabolic hormones. For guys, this typically leads to a hypogonadal issue. For girls, this typically leads to a PCOS issue, a polycystic ovarian issue, because the gonads stop responding correctly and stop behaving correctly. In terms of the rest of the tissues, we get a reduction in metabolic flexibility. <clears throat> metabolic flexibility is the ability for your cells to use multiple types of fuel sources in all of their metabolic processes, in particular ATP regeneration. People who have this anabolic dysregulation stop <clears throat> being able to use lipids as their principal fuel source when they're not doing stuff. And so what ends up happening is they start building up lipids within the plasma. It's that buildup within the lipids of the plasma that causes changes here because the cells, because there's too much lipid in the plasma, stop taking in glucose. And glucose triggers insulin secretion. But the problem is that the cells, because they're not going to be metabolically flexible, do not respond to the insulin correctly. That's why when I said that type 2 diabetes is the end result of metabolic syndrome, that's the reason why it's the end result of metabolic syndrome. Now, we also get cardiovascular issues. We get an increase in endothelial adhesions. Basically, you get atherosclerotic plaques. You get plaques within the arteries that make the arteries stiffer and less compliant. This endothelial adhesion is partially mechanically induced because the person is not active and partially hormonally induced. And we'll take a look at what that means when we start looking at the synergy of responses. In terms of body composition, we get an increase of visceral fat, we get a reduction in lean body tissue, and we get a change in what's referred to as adipocyte differentiation. There are different types of adipocytes. There are what are referred to as white adipocytes, and they're referred to as brown adipocytes. 
we have both of them throughout our body. When we start collecting large amounts of visceral fat, all of the adipocytes start behaving like white adipocytes and stop behaving like brown adipocytes. It's those change in adipocytes that end up changing some of the hormones we're going to talk about. <clears throat> the ultimate result here is the diseased health status, and the diseased health status all comes back to this change right here. So, if that's the change that leads to the diseased health status, what's the theoretical impact that exercise has? Well, we look at it in terms of a continuum. It's a continuum of disease relative to activity, where if I'm very, very inactive, <clears throat> I have a greater level of risk for disease as opposed to someone who is active and fit. As I progress up and go from being completely inactive to being sedentary, the difference between the sedentary person and the inactive person is the amount of activities of daily living that the person does. The inactive person gets up out of bed, goes sits in front of the couch, eats bonbons all day while watching TV. The sedentary person gets up out of bed, showers, makes breakfast, goes to work, sits in front of the computer all day, goes home, sits in front of the television. That's the difference between the two. Between the two. <clears throat> this right here leads to an increase in overfatness because of that whole cascade of events that we just went through. However, as I start to increase my activity, I don't automatically go from being here to being out here, regardless of how much activity all of a sudden I do. I have to go through this continuum. There's an overlap in what's referred to as the active overfat, or what some people refer to as the fit fat, or the fat and fit. <clears throat> These are people who have reduced this relative risk, but have not gained the relative decrease. So they're still, <clears throat> They still have the propensity for all of the health issues, but they no longer have as much overfatness as they had before. This decrease here appears to occur very acutely to training. So as soon as the person starts to exercise, they start having an immediate shift towards the active overfat, but they stay in this active overfat for quite some time. So if we have this continuum, what's that mean about those upper regulatory? We now have a psychological appeasement to exercise or to activity, particularly if we can match the activity or the exercise that the person likes, which means that you can't say, oh, you're over fat, go run. Oh, you're over fat, go walk. Where if you ever talk to any physicians, that's the general recommendation that the physicians give. Go do something. Problem is that if I don't have that psychological appeasement for doing something, I'm going to stop doing it. So if we can increase the psychological appeasement, we can increase the level of physical activity. Not only can we increase the level, level of physical activity, but we can differentiate that level of physical activity based on what's referred to as the acute program variables. The acute program variables are things like how many times am I going to do an exercise? How many repetitions am I going to do each time? How much resistance am I going to use? What percent of my heart rate am I going to run at? How long am I going to run? How many days in between exercise am I going to have? How many days per week am I going to exercise? Those are all the acute program variables. That goes into how we design and implement the exercise intervention. Eventually, that feeds down into the cellular response, where now we have a reversal of the anabolic dysregulation. We now get anabolic normalization. 
we now get an increase in our anabolic and androgenic hormones. We now get an increase in the receptors. We now get a decrease in the proteins in the blood that are holding on to those hormones. <clears throat> we get a normalization of leptin and a normalization of insulin. These two hormones here have the greatest impact on, on downstream or late-term metabolic issues because leptin and insulin are going to directly impact the energetics and the metabolic flexibility at the various tissues. So we get this anabolic normalization, and what do we get as a result? We get an increase in metabolic flexibilities. So now I can start using all of the different types of fuel sources for all the various types of metabolism that my cells are going to do. I'm now going to have an increase in my sensitivity to leptin and to insulin, which means that the cells are now going to start responding to those hormones, which means that I'm going to have a reduction in my glucose within the plasma, which means that I am now going to start having an increase in my fatty acid utilization. Because I have an increase in my fatty acid utilization, I have a reduction in my fat masses. As I have a reduction in my fat masses, the fat cells themselves start behaving differently. What they start doing is they start going from being a white adipose to a brown adipose. And what they start doing is they start basically burning through, for lack of a better analogy, all of the lipids that they have. They start having rapid amounts of what's called lipolysis. And what they do is they basically start shrinking down the volume of adipose cells that are there. If the adipose cell can get shrunk far enough, the adipose cell itself will end up dying. <clears throat> because we have a mechanical load going on because we're increasing physical activity, we get an increase in arterial compliance. That means that the artery itself can expand and contract more easily, which means that if we look at the blood pressure of the person, the blood pressure of the person is going to go down. Their heart rate is going to change. Their cardiovascular functions are going to change. Their cardiorespiratory measures, their aerobic fitness is going to improve. <clears throat> we get a reduction in inflammatory responses. In particular, we're no longer in a chronic inflammatory state, which means that we can now behave normally if we happen to have an infection or we happen to have a disease that we could come in contact with. We can normally take care of it without any problem. The problem with the person who's over fat is that they already have a high level of inflammatory signals. So anytime they have any type of injury, anytime they have any type of, of illness, it goes overboard. <clears throat> so if we can handle that, then we can actually have normalized response to any type of stress that's placed on the body. And eventually, we can get to a non-diseased state. And that's an eventual thing regardless of what all of the mass market people try to tell you. How does it happen? We go back to the big, huge cascade of events here. On um, this one here, calories have an impact. And it has an impact in particular on growth hormone. <clears throat> Where if you can have a, a highly restrictive caloric diet, and we're talking 800 kcals per day or less, growth hormone goes up and it's all types of growth hormone. Okay, time out. Growth hormone is not one hormone. There's a whole cascade of hormones that we call growth hormone. <clears throat> and different types of growth hormone have different types of stimuli. When you have a high caloric restriction, you stimulate the growth hormone that increases this lipolysis. Irrespective of age or gender. Irrespective of age or gender. 
In fact, that's where the um, where the one of the issues that has come about in terms of following a caloric restrictive diet throughout your life has been linked to, in terms of correlation, a prolonged lifespan. However, the mechanisms for doing that is not really well understood. We know that in at least in rat models, if we can put the rat on a very 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 low caloric intake, they're living two to three times longer in captivity than what they would normally live. Problem is, is that we haven't done we haven't done studies in humans to, to validate the rat models. Doesn't their quality of life go down as well? No, the quality of life does not. The quality of life does not go down. In fact, the quality of life in terms of the, the decline of quality of life plateaus out as they get as they get older. However, as they get very very old, it drops very very quickly. <clears throat> now, if you notice, there's a question mark here on one of the lines coming away. And the question mark here is because of the different responses that we see <coughs> within the response to exercise. Endurance exercise and resistive exercise have different effects cellularly and hormonally. When we talk about endurance exercise, most people use the term aerobic. However, it's a misnomer because you can do things that are quote unquote not aerobic and still have it be endurance. And I'll show you the stats when we look at the difference between what's low level stem resistance training versus endurance training. <clears throat> endurance training is any type of exercise that is done for a prolonged period of time at a set level of intensity. So if you pick up a 15 pound weight and lunge 200 yards back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, that's an endurance exercise because you haven't changed any of the, the outward level of intensity. Whereas resistance exercise is something where you have a variable level of intensity for a, for a variable level of duration. Now, if you notice, if we increase resistance exercise, we do not have that same question mark. And it has to do with this type of cascade that's heading out. When we have the endurance training stimulus, we have a stimulus coming away from the muscle contractions that has a slight change in our anabolic hormones. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't change an enzyme. And that enzyme is right here, aromatase. Aromatase is an enzyme that converts testosterone to estrogen. It's naturally occurring. The problem with people who are over fat is they have high levels of aromatase. <clears throat> the problem when you do endurance training is it does not affect that aromatase. And it doesn't affect the aromatase because of the training stimulus that endurance training has. What endurance training can do, besides just this muscle contraction, is it kicks up a metabolite. The metabolite it kicks up is an enzyme known as AMPK, adenosine monophosphate kinase. Adenosine monophosphate kinase is a signal to the cells that, hey, we're doing stuff for really long periods of time. We don't want to get big. Because if I get too big, I can't do stuff for really long periods of time. And so in order to combat that, <coughs> we, not, we do not have any impact on the aromatase. There's a difference when we look at what happens with the resistance training stimulus. We still have that same stimulus heading out to the muscle contraction. However, we now have a block on the aromatase, which now allows testosterone to stay as testosterone. In fact, we, we get a slight elevation in testosterone following resistance training, <coughs> both acutely and chronically. What this does is this increases lean body mass. It increases not only the amount that's there, but it increases the size that's there. 
The other thing that resistance training can do, if patterned correctly, is block the cortisol so that we do not have the inhibitory effect that cortisol has on the building of the lean body tissues. <laughs> cortisol is a good hormone, but in abundance, it's a bad hormone because what it does is it likes to catabolize, likes to break down collagen fibers in particular for utilization of proteins in energetic stuff. <laughs> and so if we cannot block that cortisol, we do not get this hypertrophication signal. Endurance training has very little impact on cortisol. Whereas resistance training, if once again, you can pattern it correctly, we can block that cortisol response. The end result, whether we're looking at resistance training or endurance training, which is gone now, is this change here, where we end up having an increase in adipocyte apoptosis, where the cells are dying, <coughs> where we get an increase in angiogenic signals, and then at the cells themselves, we get an increase of glucose uptake. We also get a change in what type of fuel sources we're using. And the change in the type of fuel sources we're using is linked directly to a change in the functions of the mitochondria. One of the issues with aging that happens more often than not is a loss of either mitochondrial enzymes or the mitochondria themselves. It's a naturally occurring thing that happens. It's one of the reasons why old people feel cold all the time. It's also one reason why old people cannot do activities for prolonged periods of time. Whether you do resistance training or endurance training, you can increase both the enzymes within the mitochondria as well as the amount of mitochondria within the tissues themselves, which means that the tissues become more aerobically fit, if you want to use that term, for doing energetics, which means that the cells themselves and the tissues themselves, in particular skeletal muscle, can do activities for longer periods of time. And once again, it doesn't matter whether we're doing resistance training or endurance training. They happen simultaneously. <clears throat> so that's the theoretical. Now let's actually take a look at what happens in between the exercises. But first, we have to worry about some definitions here. Because a lot of people throw, out, throw around the word exercise. And a lot of people who throw around the word exercise really don't know what it means. So let's talk about some terms. We've already used a few of them so that everybody's on board with what those terms actually mean. The first terms we have to worry about is physical activity versus exercise. Physical activity is doing anything. Whereas exercise is a regimented doing anything. There's a pattern that's repeatable for exercise that is not there for physical activity. Which is why if you look at recommendations coming out from ACSM or from AMA or from ADA, the American Medical Association, American College of Sports Medicine, or the American Diabetic Association, all the recommendations are this. They're physical activity recommendations. They're not this, exercise recommendations. In fact, most of them are do 150 minutes per week at some quote-unquote moderate level of intensity with no definition what moderate level of intensity happens to be. That's physical activity. <clears throat> Within exercise, there's three distinct ways of looking at exercise. We have resistance exercise. Resistance exercise does not necessarily mean lifting weights. 
it's doing short duration <coughs> interval repeated exertions. Whereas when we're talking about endurance exercise, this is long duration exercise. For resistance exercise and for endurance exercise, if you do it for multiple days, it now becomes what's called training. Training is not a single event, it's a multiple event. In fact, it's not just a multiple event, it's a repeated multiple event. <clears throat> if you put resistance exercise and endurance exercise together, you're now doing what's referred to as concurrent training. There are a whole host of ways of doing concurrent training. The classical way of doing concurrent training is to have an endurance event followed by a resistance event, or doing a resistance event followed by an endurance event. There are other ways in which you do what's referred to as a circuit interval training, where you do some resistance with some, some endurance followed by some resistance followed by some endurance within a set pattern of exercise. And then you can have concurrent training where one day a week you do resistance training, where another day a week you do endurance training, and you basically oscillate between those. <clears throat> Whenever you talk about types of training, you have to always focus on this right here, level of stimulation, which a couple friends have jokingly called the Comstock-Clark rule, which means that when you talk about level of stimulation, you can't say, oh, it's just about training volume. It's about how much muscle you actually recruited. In this case, people who are over fat automatically have a higher level of stimulation, even at a lower absolute level, because the person who is over fat has additional load that's not muscle that they have to move. The other thing that we talk about in terms of this level of stimulation is how much rest do I have, not only within the exercise bout, but between exercise bouts. All of that patterns into, the, into how we actually have endurance exercise, resistance exercise, or concurrent training. When you take all of those together and you put it into a prolonged bout, it becomes what should be referred to as periodization. The body does a thing, it's called the SAID principle. SAID, it's an acronym, Specific Adaptations to Impose Demands. Simply put, the body's gonna do what you tell the body to do. Which means that if all I ask the body to do is 15 pound weights every day, all the body's gonna respond to do is doing 15 pound weights every day. When you do and set up endurance, <coughs> resistive, or concurrent training, you do it where you modulate the level of training intensity and you modulate the level of training intensity so that the body is undergoing <coughs> constant adaptations. It doesn't have a chance to, to, to adapt to a single imposed demand. There's multiple imposed demands. The problem with that is that some people have concluded that periodization. And it leads us to this issue of how we look at exercise and how we talk about exercise. <coughs> Current reports from the CDC reports that about 40% or less of adults, 18 to 65, meet that recommendation of activity per week. <clears throat> of those 40%, 80% attempt multiple bouts of hypocaloric conditions, either diet, exercise, or diet and exercise. <clears throat> Most of them 
do it four to five times in a calendar year. And they typically stop doing it because of either unrealistic goals or not understanding how long distinct adaptations take. Which leads us to the next problem, compliance and attrition rates. Compliance is willing to do what you're being told to do. Attrition is following through for a prolonged period of time. <clears throat> Within a 12-month period, less than 15% of all adults who have started a program stay in the program. Within six months, it's 50%. Within two months, it's 60%. And every gym in the country knows this. Which is why every gym in the country, whenever you sign up for a membership, always sign you up for automatic payments. Because they know that 60% of everybody who comes in that door that day is going to drop out within two months, but I'm still going to keep getting the cash coming in to the gym. Because most people say, oh, I'll get back there because I'm going to repeat that initial behavior again. So they keep going and going and going. And it, and it causes a perpetuation of some issues. The other issue here is what we do in terms of looking at what's out there. <clears throat> and what a friend of mine has told me is an overexposure to the quote unquote renowned fitness expert. And I actually did a search yesterday online, and that's just a smattering of what goes on. In fact, most of these renowned fitness experts are somehow pitching some mass market product. And most of the mass market products are confluting and conflating that issue of periodization into a program that's complex for complexity's sake. It's not complex in order to cause continual adaptation. It's complex because I'm doing this that someone else isn't doing. It has nothing to do with whether it's beneficial or not. It's all about, can I make a market for myself? <clears throat> when, that takes, when that takes into place, we have to worry about issues with the person who is overfat by themselves, because that, those two things affect everybody. For the person who is overfat, there's two distinct factors which will <clears throat> limit what type of exercises they are recommended to do. That is the social stigma bias and the application bias. The social stigma bias is that, oh, fat people should only do this, or over fat people should only do that, or women should only do this, or men should only do that. And then you go and talk to the health experts, the physicians, the nurses, the nurse assistants, the, excuse me, the physician's assistants, the nurse, nurse practitioners, the physical therapists, most of them who maybe had an exercise physiology class in their undergraduate days, but haven't had an exercise physiology class in decades. <coughs> they follow what we like to talk, talk about as being application bias, which is, oh, well, ACSM says you should do this, so that's what I'm going to tell you to do. Or this is what I found to be most beneficial, so I'm going to have you do that. And what happens is that it, it pigeonholes what the person who's over fat can or cannot be doing, which goes back into the in my humble opinion type of issues, which is where I did this, and if you go on Yahoo today and just punch in health, you'll, you'll get 5 million responses. I, I did it last night, and it was 5,155,000 responses of, this is what happened to me. You should do this because this worked for me, responses. People are constantly bombarded with that. The problem is, is that they don't understand what's the underlying principle of why it might have worked for them, but why it might not work for you. 
And it has to do with it has to do with the fact that when they're talking about stuff, they're talking about things based on absolutes. But the problem is, is that every study or every intervention program, the <coughs> program variables are so dissimilar that absolute values don't tell us anything. Because they did something for six months versus somebody doing something for one month. Duration has a large impact. Level of intensity has a large impact. <coughs> because we have all of these issues here, we have an impact on what ACSM has liked to term exercises medicine. The problem if we're going to use exercise as medicine is that we have to have a dose response. If we don't have a dose response, we cannot use exercise as medicine. The reason why you go to the doctor and the doctor says take this one tablet every six hours is because they know what the dose response is, is going to be based on all of your underlying physiology. So we have all of those issues. We have all of those <coughs> problems. So what do the findings tell us? What we're going to look at here are meta-analytical responses to about 92 studies where we pool grouped 390 different study groups for analysis. And we did it because we had to remember that we have too many dissimilarities to look at absolutes. What we did is we did what's referred to as pooled aggregate effect sizing. What we did is we looked at what is the average difference of change between populations over the total standard deviation of all those populations. What it does is it gives us a normalized curve to work with. Within that normalized curve, we can get what's referred to as a confidence interval. That is, how confident am I that you will fall between these two points within that normal effect size curve? Because we want to talk about effect size, that is, how effective is a treatment likely to be as opposed to the absolute numbers? Because once again, the absolute numbers may be misleading. After doing that, we then did, a sec we did, we then did secondary analysis. Because human physiology is so complex, it's very hard to distinguish a true cause and effect relationship in between variables. So what we have to do is we have to look at what's referred to as biological interaction. That is, how likely are changes in factor A going to coincide with changes in factor B, and how much variance is there between that coefficient of change? What this does is it gives us two distinct measures. This gives us measures of what's referred to as biological interaction and synergy of response. Biological interaction is, if something changes, how likely is something linked to it going to change? The synergy of response is, is it going to go in the same direction or not? In terms of simplistic, in terms of simplistic explanation without going into an hour and a half of stats class. So, we set out to address the following questions in our systematic review and our meta-analysis. Are, are there exercise methods that are better in comparison to the common dietary recommendations, meaning being hypocaloric, being low-fat diet, being high-protein diet? <clears throat> Do exercise methods induce a different effectiveness in altering outcome measures? And we looked at it based off of the type of exercise, the intensity of exercise, and the duration of exercise. The duration of exercise is based off of weeks of training. 
And then we said, okay, there's this complex issue here. So what's the degree of association between those outcome measures based off of the type of exercise, the intensity of exercise, or the duration of exercise? And what we did is we tested the hypothesis based on pooled effect size that there would be no difference between exercises, meaning that all exercises behaved equally for measures of body composition, measures of cardiovascular and cardiorespiratory dynamics. Cardiovascular dynamics were looked at in terms of systolic blood pressure and diastolic blood pressure. The reason why we use systolic and diastolic blood pressure is because resting heart rate has a variable means for measuring and was not universally reported. Whereas systolic and diastolic blood pressure is universally measured, meaning everybody does the same measurement, and was universally reported, meaning they all, measured the, they all reported the same values. And cardiorespiratory dynamics. Cardiorespiratory dynamics is the VO2 max, or what's the aerobic fitness for the person. <clears throat> then we looked at in terms of measures of diabetic indices. This is fasting, resting levels of insulin, glucose, <clears throat> and what's referred to as A1C. A1C is um, a hemoglobin that has been glycolated, had glucose stuck onto it. Once again, lack of a better analogy here. A1C levels is an indication of chronic metabolic issues or chronic diabetic issues, whereas glucose and insulin levels can, sh can uh, swing and shift very easily and very rapidly based off of diet, based off of, of exercise, whereas A1C levels have a, have a constant rise and a constant fall relative to the level of insulin, relative, relative to the level of glucose over long periods of time. So A1C gives us a chronic picture, whereas glucose and insulin gives us, give us an acute picture. And then we looked at it relative to the hormones associated with overfatness. In this case here, we, look, we looked at two distinct adipocyte hormones. The two distinct adipocyte hormones we looked at were leptin, which you'll see abbreviated OB, which is the, the abbreviation we use for that hormone, and adiponectin, which you'll see abbreviated ADIP. Those are hormones that get secreted by fat cells based off of their relative level of metabolic activity that have effects both immunologically as well as metabolically. And then we looked at inflammatory hormones, TNF-alpha, a plasmal protein known as C-reactive protein, which you'll see as CRP, and then a hormone known as IL-6. The reason why we looked at IL-6 is because IL-6 is an interesting hormone because it has multiple factors and does multiple things throughout the body. One of the things it does is it helps regulate the diabetic indices. So what we did is we sat down and we searched PubMed, which is one of the online search engines through the National Institute of Health, Sinhal, Sports Discus, and Scopus, utilizing the following key terms. Because we only wanted to deal with humans, we used the key term human, and then it was followed by the Boolean prompt, not, and then we listed anything that wasn't human. So we studied stuff with rats, we studied stuff with mice, we studied stuff with dogs, we studied stuff with pigs, we studied stuff with horses, we studied stuff with cows. We don't want any of that, we only wanted humans. And then we combined in multiple patterns, obesity, exercise, resistance training, endurance training, strength training, aerobic training, diet, and then the various adipokines, and then the various cytokines, and, or inflammatory hormones, and then the various anabolic hormones, 
and then the thyroid hormone, and then the insulins, and then the inflammation, and weight loss, and fat mass, and fat free mass. <coughs> and out of all of that, and I'll show you a schematic in a second here, <coughs> we basically limited, to, limited the search to 1980 to 2014. Populations had to be human. They had to be identified as being overfat, obese, and or diabetic. They had to be adult. You, we have another paper that was looking at kids, which is a whole nother beast of a, of a thing to worry about. <clears throat> it was designed, the design of the intervention was to induce body compositional changes or hormonal changes associated with being overfat. The people in the study had to be introduced into an intervention study that randomly assigned them either into a treatment, into a set treatment, or into a control group which means they couldn't select what group they were in. They got put into a, a distinct group. The treatment had to be chronic. In this case, we called four weeks the bottom end for chronic. Most of the studies we actually pulled were eight weeks and beyond. There were a couple studies that were four weeks. And it had to be reproducible, which means it could not be some complex thing for complexity's sake. It could be something where we could cut the exercise prescription or cut the dietary prescription give it to somebody and say, please follow, and have it laid out in such a way that they were able to follow it. So, utilizing those key phrases, we got an initial return of 7,408 studies. Out of that, 7,080 were immediately eliminated because of not meeting inclusion criteria. 320 then got initially screened. Of that, 214 got removed either because they were duplicates, because when you do search engines, you can get multiple hits off the same, same journal. Of that, 48 were obese only. 66 were obese with type 2 diabetes or type 2 diabetic. Out of that, 92 got included into the review. The other ones that got excluded were either duplicates, meaning that the author of the paper publish the same results in multiple journals, which happens a lot, <clears throat> or the results that were given were not compatible for use in the meta-analysis and the authors were not responsive to our inquiry. What can happen when you do, re when you, we can happen when you do reviews like this, if the author gives, say, like percent change, you, you can email the, the author and say, hey, we really like your study, but we want to include the results. Can you send us the averages as opposed to the percent changes? Most of them did not respond in a timely fashion to allow us to go forward with, with the review. 92 studies went into the review. Out of those 92 studies, 390 study groups were parsed out. These were parsed out based off of training stimulus and or dietary intervention. <coughs> Within that, we then pooled all 390 studies to give us an overall effect size and overall 95% compensable. We then did the same thing based off of comparisons for each of the various measures. We then did the same thing for a comparison between each of the various measures for each one of the pooled groups. We then did it based off of the training intensity for each of the pooled measures. The, what about duration? Hmm? Duration. Duration, duration got, got pooled in there as well. In fact, I'll show you. I'll show you this. I ran out of room on the on the tables. That's small. That's small already. It gets smaller if I put the durations in there. 
We then pooled it by duration, first based off of four-week intervals, and then based off of the length of study durations. So what we did is we clustered them to four weeks, and then we then clustered to eight weeks, 16 weeks, 32 weeks, and 52 weeks, because those were the lengths of, the, the lengths of studies that we saw. <clears throat> After calculating the, the effect sizes, we then did a chi-square chi analysis. <clears throat> the chi-square analysis that we did was based off of a high-low interaction. Did you get above the pooled effect size, or did you get below the pooled effect size? <clears throat> did you get above the dietary effect size, or did you get below the dietary effect size? And then we did the Cox regression analysis to see what do those changes between the variables mean relative to outcome measures. So this is how we divided up the training. For resistance training, we determined two distinct levels, high-low. High was greater than 75% of a 1RM, maximal level of exertion. Three to five sets, five to eight reps, progressive within the level of intensity, with greater than 60 seconds of rest interval, meaning that the training program was hypertrophic, make, trying to make the muscles larger. It involved free weight, whole body, or multi-jointed exercises. Once again, it goes back to that level of stimulation. Low level was less than 70%, less than two reps, less than, excuse me, less than two sets, greater than 15 reps, limited to no rest interval, meaning that they were trying to get muscular endurance or it utilized selectorized machinery, or it was an isolated exercise. Once again, it goes back to that overall level of muscle stimulation. Endurance exercise was deviated based off of high being greater than 70% of heart rate max for, 40, for 30, 45 minutes. Once again, progressive in terms of the actual heart rate that they trained at. Or it was a non-steady, or what's sometimes referred to as interval training program where they oscillated between 50 and 90% of their VO2 max, or the maximum aerobic capacity, over the length of the interval. Low was <clears throat> less than 60%, which is what, if you look at, in terms of what people talk about, is the quote-unquote fat metabolism zone for endurance activity. And then we looked at in terms of the combination of the two, where we deemed high to be a concurrent high-high High resistance training, low endurance training. Once again, where we're deeming high be high level of, of overall muscle stimulation. Or we did a, a circuit, or there was a circuit program where it was high, high, or high, low. Or if it was low, where it was low resistance training, regardless of the level of endurance training. What we have to remember here when we talk about comparative levels, and people get <laughs> thrown for a loop here, just because we say something is less effective doesn't mean it does not have an effect. The way in which we say it doesn't have an effect is that if the no treatment side becomes more prominent within that 95% confidence interval. So I'm going to show you some, some graphs here where the no treatment side is more favored within the analysis than the treatment side. In that case, the treatment was, was not effective. And this is how we established whether or not we had effectiveness or not. So, what happens in terms of altering body composition? So, if we look at body composition based off of just the exercise itself, <clears throat> all exercise noted an effect. Endurance training noted an effect, but there's a caveat here. Resistance training noted an effect, but there was a little bit towards favoring no effect. In <clears throat> combination, 
favored effect, but once again, there's a trail towards the no effect. The reason why there's a caveat on this endurance training is because of this right here. The favorment for fat-free mass, lean body mass, is to gain, which means that if they gained fat-free mass, it was seen as being a beneficial change, meaning it favored the treatment, which means that if we looked at it in terms of a, a combined effect of losing fat mass, which all of them showed, and losing fat-free mass, the endurance training always showing a positive effect is actually a misnomer because they're losing mass that they actually want to keep. If we look at this over duration, if we look at it over intensity, resistance training at high levels of stimulation was the only exercise method, regardless of dietary intervention, that showed favor for exercise throughout, meaning it did not touch the no effect or favor of treatment. In terms of duration, there is a plateau effect in terms of body compositional changes that occur right around 8 to 12 weeks of duration where the effect does not change thereafter for body mass. And most of this has to do in terms of changes of intensity and the progression at which they worked. If you look at the fat mass, same thing occurs where we get a plateau. This plateau, instead of being at about 12 weeks, actually occurs at about 20 weeks. Once again, after 20 weeks, there's no more response. In fact, the biggest level of response actually occurs roughly around 8 to 12 weeks of duration. For the fat-free mass, and you can notice the strange thing here, for the change in fat-free mass, we never had for the endurance training, a favor towards doing endurance training. There are some studies out there that, has, that have stipulated that there's an increase in fat-free mass for endurance training, but what they're actually reporting is the change in body compositional percentages. So the person lost mass, but the person lost a higher percent of mass from fat mass, and so their percents changed. So it wasn't that they were hypertrophic, they weren't adding muscle mass, they just lost so much more fat mass than they lost of muscle mass. And once again, if you notice, with resistance training, we're always above. For the combination, there appears to be no overall effect based on duration. So what we saw based off of the training intensity or based off the overall does not change as we go through the duration, which means that they're going to constantly stay at the same level effect throughout the duration, utilizing the concurrent. Here's the real funny thing. For caloric expenditure, it almost favored no effect. Favored no effect either to the, tr either to the no treatment, the pretest, or to the dietary interventions. <clears throat> this holds true throughout the duration, with the exception of this little blip right here. And that little blip right there is because the very short duration comp concurrent training were high intensity circuit interval training programs. Which means that even though we have a reduction in caloric balance, there was no real change in between the various levels of exercise. 
Not only was there no real change between the various levels of exercise, it seems to be <coughs> intensity dependent to a certain extent. Not only that, it seems to be time dependent, which means that it seems to equate out over the length of durations of study. For fat-free mass, lean body mass, there was both the decrease that we saw with endurance as well as an increase that we saw with resistance and concurrent, where any high level of resistance training was greater than any type of endurance or concurrent training, where low levels of resistance training were equal to or greater than the concurrent training regardless of level of intensity, and greater than endurance training, once again, regardless of level of intensity. High levels of concurrent training were greater than the low levels of endurance of concurrent as well as high levels of endurance training. Low levels of concurrent training were greater than the low levels of endurance training for the fat-free mass side. For the fat mass side, and there's a little asterisk there, I'll get to that in a second. Once again, any resistance training, regardless of level of intensity or dietary intervention, was greater than any of the concurrent, which was greater than and equal to the change that we saw with endurance training, which I know is, a is kind of misconstrued to what everybody talks about in terms of what you should see. <coughs> in this, high levels of resistance training was greater than <coughs> either of the other two options regardless of the level of intensity. Low level of resistance training was greater than the low levels of concurrent and equal to the low levels of endurance training. And it has more to do with um, signals of lipolysis that occurs during the actual event than anything else. You can see the high levels of concurrent training and then the low levels of concurrent training. Now the interesting thing here with the, with the caloric balance issue <coughs> is that there is no difference noted between the studies based off of total caloric change, which means that all of the studies had relatively the same level of caloric imbalance which allows us to stipulate here that all of the changes that we see here have nothing to do with that whatsoever. It's not about calorie in, calorie out. However, you do need to have the chronic hypocaloric event, which means that over a prolonged period of time, you have to have that imbalance of calorie in, calorie out. However, the effectiveness by which you establish that has no bearing on what change you have either in body composition or in the components within body composition. There was no difference noted with body mass, and there was no difference noted with body mass index, which means that everybody changed across all exercises equally in terms of effectiveness, which means that for body composition, <coughs> resistance training has a greater level of effectiveness than endurance training or concurrent training. Now, there was a caveat here on this asterisk. The only effect that diet had was on fat mass. There was no additive benefit or no additive effect from dietary changes outside of the change in fat mass. And it was for one type of diet only, the high protein diet, where high protein diet was classified as greater than, as 1.85 grams per kilogram to 2.25 grams per kilogram, or approximately 25% of total caloric intake per day. The low-fat diet actually was worse than anything else you could possibly do. The general hypocaloric diet was worse than anything else you could possibly do. The low glycemic diet, or the typical diabetic diet, 
was not any better than the regular hypocaloric diet in changing any of these factors here. Which takes us to the next outcome measure, the altering of the cardiovascular. <clears throat> for this, positive effect for blood pressures was a reduction. Positive effect for what's called VO2 max or aerobic fitness was a gain. So, as you notice, everything had a positive effect on blood pressure. Everything but resistance training had a complete positive effect on aerobic capacity. And that has more to do with the, with the acute program variables and how it's measured. Because VO2 max is measured based off of, off of body mass. So if you don't have a huge change in body mass, which a lot of the resistance training groups did not, you're not going to see a huge change in VO2 max, even though you are more aerobically fit, simply because of how it's measured. Because it's, it's, this VO2 max is measured by how much oxygen you inhale and utilize per kilogram of body mass. So if you don't have a huge change in body mass, you're not going to have a huge change in VO2 max, even if you can do more of endurance activity. If we look at it in terms of level of <coughs> intensity, once again, the high level of resistance training and the high level of concurrent training were better across the board. Here's the interesting thing here. The low level of resistance training mirrored all of the changes that we saw with endurance training, regardless of the level of intensity. This is, this is where we can start to stipulate that low levels of resistance training mimic endurance training in terms of their cardiovascular and cardiorespiratory impact, which means that it most likely has very similar metabolic. The problem is, is that we can't stipulate that because there's been nobody who's actually researched it. So if we look at it in terms of in terms of duration, here's systolic blood pressure. So you're saying directly studied it versus you're looking at the metadata. Well, we, we can come to that conclusion, but the problem is, is that we, we're stipulating that it's a metabolic. It's they're similar meta, metabolic responses, but the problem is that no one's studied it, so we can't actually do the the, the meta analysis on that because there's no data. <clears throat> here's systolic blood pressure. Once again, note that we have this plateau effect that occurs with everything but the concurrent. The concurrent seems to have a perpetual increase throughout the length of training. Here is the diastolic blood pressure. Once again, note that we have this plateauing effect that occurs as we go through the duration of training, which stipulates that most of the, most of the adaptations are, are occurring within a very short window and the short window is less than about 16 weeks. And then here's the change in aerobic capacity. What's your takeaway from that after 16 weeks? Um, most of it has to do with the fact that the, most of the training programs, even though they were called progressive, did not progress at a level that would cause um, a compliance change within the, within, within the arteries. Um, the other thing is, is that most of the studies were run by MDs and most MDs and most IRB boards, um, the people who review whether or not we can actually do the studies, like to CYA themselves. And so they don't allow us to go to levels of intensity that we want to go to for, for um, legal liability issues. Because anytime anybody has an adverse effect to exercise, we have to document it and then we get interviewed and it becomes a, a whole rigmarole. <laughs> Same thing happens with aerobic capacity. However, there's a slight blip up on resistance training and a slight blip up on concurrent training later on in 
the duration of a training that we don't see with the endurance training that basically plateaus out at about 16 weeks. No, no, it's, it's, it's the, the simple means that the effect size doesn't change. So they could, they could still be having a positive effect, they could still be having positive adaptations, but the effect size doesn't change, which means that the difference between the two, two measures relative to the standard deviation doesn't change, which means that it's not, as, it, it's not gaining any more effectiveness. It's still effective, yes, but it doesn't gain any more effectiveness. That's why we say it plateaus. It's not, that it, it's not that it stops, it's just that it plateaus. So what's this mean in terms of comparison? For the systolic blood pressure, there's no difference that we, that we noted between all of the exercise models or between all of the intensity models. However, for systolic blood pressure, any endurance training was greater than any resistance training, which was greater than or equal to any of the concurrent training. However, there's the caveat again, the high level of resistive training was greater than the high level of endurance training or concurrent training, but was less than the low level of endurance training. And it may have to do with the duration of exercise event that the low level endurance people were being subjected to more than anything else. Once again, it's something that we're stipulating, but no one's done the research, so we can't actually go beyond that stipulation. <coughs> endurance training was equal to the concurrent training in terms of systolic blood pressure. For diastolic blood pressure, any resistance training was greater than any of the endurance training, which was greater than or equal to any of the concurrent training. Once again, this is kind of a, a misconception to what most people talk about, saying, oh, you're not going to get a cardiovascular adaptation from resistance training. This right here shows you that you do get a cardiovascular adaptation from resistance training because any type of exercise causes a cardiovascular response. And we'll get to why that occurs in a couple seconds here. <laughs> High levels of endurance training was equal to the low levels of endurance training, as we saw with the, with the graphs. Low levels of resistance training was slightly higher than the low levels of endurance training based off of, of, of the um, chi-square and analysis. For the VO2, we had equality between concurrent and endurance training. It was greater than or equal to depending upon intensity and duration to the resistance training. Now with the cardiovascular and cardiorespiratory stuff, there is a link here to the change in inflammatory markers, in particular CRP, relative to the systolic and diastolic blood pressure, and that has to do with what CRP does within the vasculature. There was, a, there was an indication based off of the limited interaction between some of the inflammatory markers and resistance training, that resistance training has a secondary mechanism for altering the blood pressures. And we're stipulating here that it has to be a tr has to do to a transient load on the cardiovascular system, which means that as you as you do muscle contractions, you change the relative pressure at a different rate than what you do when you have endurance training. <clears throat> so let's take a look at the blood lipids. The blood lipids is an interesting one because it's a different response for the people who are diabetic versus the people who are non-diabetic. I'm going to show you the whole group here, and then we'll talk about the differences between the diabetic and the non-diabetic. If you notice, there's very little effect size noted for any of the measures of cholesterol. 
and it has to do with the impact that the diabetics had on this chart. Non-diabetic groupings showed effect and always showed positive effect for all the measures of cholesterol. The diabetic group showed zero effect to a negative effect, meaning it favored the no treatment, across the board for all measures of cholesterol. <clears throat> the thinking behind that is, is that it has to do with that, all that mechanism we talked about in terms of the metabolic syndrome more than anything has to do with the actual exercise issue, which means that the people within the group who were diabetic did not exercise long enough to get to that active level within that continuum. If we continue to follow them for prolonged periods of time, we may see within the diabetic group a, a positive effect and always a positive effect. So if we look at it in terms of duration, <coughs> within the endurance group, we have a drop. Within the resistance group, we have a rise. Within the <coughs> combination group, we basically stay the same, with a small little drop for triglyceride levels, for, le for levels of lipids within the plasma. <coughs> this shift here at the middle point of most training periods within most of the studies, the 8 to 16 week or the 12 week window of time, may be an indication of changes of actual metabolism occurring meaning that the cells are actually utilizing the lipids at a faster rate within the resistance training, whereas they got that signal very early on with the endurance training. Because if you notice, after that little blip, they're basically the same. Yeah? Um, we limited it to JIT. There was no statins allowed within there, but they were allowed to have any of the diabetic medicines. And I'll get to the change that we saw with the diabetic medicines in a second here. <laughs> Here's the total cholesterol. Note, almost no change above that no line across all the durations. Once again, the diabetic group is affecting what we see with the whole group. HDL, there was a rather large change with HDL levels with the resistance training group very, very early on. This actually is an outlier within all of the studies and it has to do with the fact there was a, a smaller study group for the HDL group for that resistance training than for, than for any of the other groups. This group right here barely made the cut for the number of groups we can have in order to actually do a pooled effect size. And for the LDL, once again, this blip here on the resistance training is because we have a very small number of studies within that, within that number. But once again, note, we're basically teetering on that zero effect for the LDL. Once again, for the cholesterol levels, it has to do with that diabetic issue. <clears throat> and it has to do with the fact that the diabetic and the non-diabetic had different responses. Where the diabetic for the triglycerides, if we throw everything in, we get equality. However, we do have a difference between high and low levels of exertion or high low levels of exercise. For the diabetic, low levels of endurance training were greater than the high levels of concurrent. Low levels of concurrent training were greater than the low levels of endurance training. There was no difference seen with the triglycerides for the diabetic between resistance training or endurance training. However, for the non-diabetic, there was a difference that we saw. We saw that for high endurance training, it was actually less than, we had a lower effect relative to the low endurance training, and the high endurance training was actually equal to the low resistance training group. The high resistance training group was greater than either type of level of exertion on the endurance training and was equal to 
the concurrent training group. Yeah. What kind of diabetics were they? Were they type 1, type 2? Everything was type 2. We, we limited it to type 2. We tried to, um, in, terms of the, in, terms of the in terms of the studies, we, we pulled in. We allowed the studies to have people who were on um, diabetic medicine, but we, but we made sure that pharmacologically it did not affect any of the other um, measures that we, that we would see. In terms of the total cholesterol, as noted, no differences. For the diabetic, that's the reason for the no differences for the whole group. There was no differences for that diabetic pooling. And remember, the, in terms of the pools, there was more study groups for the diabetic than there were for just the over, just for the overfat or the obese. However, when we get into the non-diabetic, just the obese people, just the overfat people, the concurrent training was greater than the endurance training. The concurrent training at high levels was equal to the high levels of resistance training, but was greater than the low levels of resistance training. High levels of resistance training was, great, was equal to high levels of endurance training, but was greater than low levels of endurance training. Low levels of concurrent training was greater than low levels of resistance training, but equal to low levels of resistance training. HDL, we get a little bit of a difference of intensity within the diabetic group that mirrors the same thing we see with the non-diabetic group where the high levels of resistance training have a slightly larger effect than the endurance training and about level effect to the concurrent training. For the LDL, the concurrent training appeared to have a greater effect than the resistance training, very slightly, and both were larger than the endurance training. And we parcel out in terms of the levels of intensity for the diabetic and for the non-diabetic where for the diabetic, high levels of endurance training were equal to the resistance training regardless of the levels, but were less than the high levels of concurrent training. Whereas the low levels of concurrent training were greater than either type of exercise at low levels of stimulation. For the non-diabetic, it pretty much mirrors where high levels of endurance training were equal to the low levels of resistance training, but high levels of resistance training were greater than the endurance training regardless of level of intensity, and were equal to the high levels of concurrent training and high levels of concurrent training were, as would be suspected, greater than the endurance training. With the blood lipids, the change here in terms of degree of interaction and synergy appear to be linked to a change in fat-free mass for the resistant and the concurrent training models and to the fat mass for the endurance training model. <clears throat> for all of the lipid measures, there was a linkage to a change to the change that we saw with aerobic fitness, which means that with the with the change in aerobic fitness, we saw a concurrent change in the lipid profiles, which allows us to kind of stipulate that it has to do with the metabolics of the exercise more than anything else. The inflammatory markers show another similar thing to what we saw with the lipid profiles. And it has to do probably more with the state of inf inflammation more than anything else. Once again, here is leptin, abbreviated OB, adiponectin, abbreviated ADIP. For any of the exercises, for endurance exercise and for resistance exercise, we were always above, in terms of the pooled effect size, the favoring of doing something, whatever type of exercise that happened to be. For the concurrent, it kind of teetered right around the no effect. This number is actually 0 0.04. 0 
in terms of the actual number. So it's barely above that zero point, meaning there's no effect whatsoever. For the adiponectin, the, the combination actually favored not doing anything relative to the change in adiponectin levels, whereas resistance training was the only one that showed favor towards actually doing something, but it does actually still cross that no effect side. So is that statistically significant? Um, in terms of the difference, um, in terms of the chi-square analysis between them, um, Yes for, resist yes, for the resistance training on the um, adiponectin. There's, in terms of uh, chi-square of the studies that were above versus the studies that were below, resistance training was, was more effective than either of them on any of the levels for adiponectin. It was equal to endurance training on, on leptin. And both of them were greater than the concurrent training on leptin. These, these were all, these, it's, it's all standardized protocol. These were all done by ELISA method in terms of analyzing what lipids were in, the, were in there. And inflammatory markers? In terms of? Significance. Uh, well, <laughs> leptin here should, yeah, okay. So leptin should be normally secreted in very low levels. And when you have excessive metabolism occurring within, within adipocytes, it increases the level of leptin that's being, that's being produced. <clears throat> adiponectin is typically secreted <clears throat> in very high levels and as the adipocyte becomes more filled it becomes lower and lower and lower in terms of what gets produced because adiponectin is secreted as adipocytes have higher levels of, have, have higher levels of lipolytic activity whereas <clears throat> leptin gets, gets secreted opposite of that Leptin, leptin has impacts on multiple, le multiple levels, has impacts hypothalamically on feeding responses and total energetic balances, but it also has effects on macrophage activity and causes what's referred to as hypertrophication of macrophages, and it increases the, the rate of secretion of two um, pro-inflammatory um, interleukins from those macrophages. Adiponectin has effects um, at the hypothalamus with whole energy balance, just like, just like leptin, but it also has impacts on the left ventricle of the heart as well as um, the muscles within the arteries, leading, leading to stiffening of the arteries or increased vasoconstrictive behavior. Um, those are uh, not that I know of in term, terms, of direct, terms of direct causation. There is, there is a causation of overfatness to room to rheumatic changes, but those have to do more with IL-1, IL-2, and IL-10 changes, more than changes to leptin and adiponectin. However, leptin and adiponectin have impacts on the production of both of those hormones. So if we look at it based off of level of intensity, what's interesting here is that the low level of resistance training appears to have the greatest impact or greatest level of effectiveness relative to all of the other types of exercise modalities that we saw. If we look at it in terms of duration, once again, we see a rise followed by a plateauing out of the effects for leptin here. Once again, that plateauing out appears to be between that 12 to 16 week period of time. And for adiponectin, notice here for the endurance training, there appears to be no change within the effectiveness based on the duration 
which means that all durations appear to have equal level of effectiveness throughout the duration of training, whereas for the concurrent training, there's a high level of effectiveness early on that diminishes midway through that comes back as we have prolonged periods of training. For the inflammatory markers, and once again, this gets kind of conflated because the diabetics change what we see with the whole group. <clears throat> we have very little change with IL-6. The change we see with IL-6 is predominantly from resistance training. However, the effect size that we see with change of IL-6 is very small. TNF-alpha, all of them have an effect. However, all of them do still cross that no effect size. For CRP, the greatest effect actually comes from resistance training more than any of the other methods of training. And there's no real explanation for why. And there's no real postulate for why. Because it's it kind of, it's a, a wrench in the, in the mechanisms as to why that should be, whereas everything else doesn't. If we look at it in terms of level of training intensity, note we have huge changes with the resistance, with the high, me, the low level of endurance training with TNF alpha and the low levels of resistance training with TNF alpha. Very little change with IL-6, very little change with CRP. In fact, for CRP, for the com combined or concurrent training, we actually have an effect size, a pooled effect size that actually favors not doing it relative to CRP. Once again, there's no real explanation for why, because any level of activity should change the rate of secretion of CRP. <coughs> for IL-6, once again, note, almost no change whatsoever for IL-6 across all the exercise modes. For resistance training, we get, it, we get an increase at about six weeks that stays at that same level throughout the length and duration of training, whereas we get a change in endurance training at about 12 weeks that kind of peters out as it goes along. So what's this mean in terms of comparison to other issues. For leptin, resistance training greater than endurance training, which is greater than or equal to endurance or resistance training. High levels of intensity greater than low levels of intensity. High levels of concurrent training are greater than endurance training or high levels of resistance training. High levels of resistance training are greater than low levels of resistance training or low levels of endurance training and are equal to high levels of endurance training. For adiponectin, the combination of endurance and resistance training is greater than or equal to resistance training, which is greater than or equal to endurance training. High is greater than low. Low levels of resistance training is less than or less effect, has a lower effect size than the combination of high and <coughs> low com combined. It's less than the endurance training at high levels, but it's greater than the endurance training at low levels. The combined Endurance and resistance training at high levels is greater than endurance training by itself. IL-6, low levels of resistance training is greater than the low levels of endurance training or com combined training. The combined training is equal to endurance training at low levels. No difference is noted at high levels. For TNF-alpha, high levels of resistance training is greater than any of the other combinations that happen to be there. For CRP, any endurance training seemed to be better than the com combination, which seemed to be better than the endurance, than the resistance training, 
for the group as a whole. However, when we look at it for the diabetic person, we get a shift, we get a swing here. And the swing is where resistance training is greater than endurance training, and endurance training is equal to the endurance plus resistance training. This is where it's getting confusing because CRP should change beneficially regardless of what we're doing. <clears throat> regardless of whether we're looking at the group as a whole or, at, or the diabetic group, high is greater than low. High resistance training is equal to low resistance training. Any type of resistance training is greater than any type of endurance training. In terms of connection, the change in adiponectin and the change in TNF-alpha appear to be linked to caloric imbalance, which appear to be linked to the change in fat mass. <coughs> the change in leptin appear to be changed to caloric imbalance for just endurance training and just concurrent training, whereas the change in, excuse me, the change in CRP had its greatest change in resistance training relative to, in terms of linkage to, any of the cardiovascular changes that we saw with resistance training. There is no additive benefit to any of the inflammatory markers from diet, regardless of what type of diet was followed. <clears throat> the diabetic indices, which is the last one before I start going through some slides to show you where this interaction is actually playing out. Here's the interesting thing, and once again, the diabetics are throwing a monkey wrench here. There is very little change or very little effectiveness for change that we see with levels of insulin or levels with glucose following any of the exercise training protocols. However, across the board, all exercise modalities were effective for changing A1C, which means that all exercise modalities have an effect on the chronic level of diabetic change, but may not have an effect on the acute level of diabetic change. And it has to do with other factors that will influence those two, even though they all follow the standard glucose tolerance testing for levels of insulin and levels of glucose. If we look at it in terms of level of training intensity, once again, almost all of the exercises for both insulin and glucose were right around that no effect whereas all of the exercises, regardless of level of intensity, were, right or, were all favoring exercise. Here is the graph for insulin looking at the duration. Note here for endurance training, we get a rapid effect that goes away very quickly with endurance training. This does not get seen with any of the other modalities of exercise. And it may have to do, once again, with that metabolic effect that endurance training has, that resistance training or concurring don't have, that we haven't studied yet, mainly because we can't get the money to study it. Glucose, same thing occurs. However, what we see is we see a rise in all of them, followed by a plateauing out throughout the length of duration. A1C, same thing. However, we get a we get. For endurance training, we get a drop followed by a continual rise throughout, whereas for both resistance training and the concurrent training, there is a constant rise of effectiveness throughout the duration of training, especially as we got out larger, longer into it, 
However, for all of these, the combined endurance and resistance training were always more effective than either resistance training by itself or endurance training by itself. So, what's this mean? Well, for insulin and for glucose, we have some, some mixed signals here. However, for A1C levels, all A1C levels drop throughout. <clears throat> and as you notice, the combination was greater than everything. The low resistance training was equal to the low combination training, but was greater than any of the endurance training. And once again, it may have to do with that metabolic issue that no one studied. So what's this mean in terms of synergy and interaction? Insulin and glucose changes appear to be linked with leptin changes and TNF-alpha changes for endurance training only and only at longer durations. <clears throat> Whereas they are linked with resistance training at short to moderate durations. A1C was linked to changes in caloric balance and the changes in diabetic indices were independent of any changes in any of the body mass or body mass index, but were linked to changes in fat-free mass for resistance training and linked to changes in fat mass for all exercises. So how do we get this <coughs> change? What we have is we have different signals coming in. For the high level of resistance training, we get a signal from the muscles, either causing a transient mechanical load or causing a change in signals coming from the muscle cell themselves. The change in muscle cells cause a change in adipocyte metabolism, which causes a reduction in leptin. Resistance training also tends to limit the amount of AMPK as long as you pattern correctly meaning you have the correct level of rest and you're training at the correct level of intensity. What this does is this changes the hypothalamic outflow. What it does is it normalizes what's referred to as the HPG, hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. Because people who are over fat have an issue with gonadal function, we need to somehow change that gonadal function to make them normal. Resistance training changes this. We change gonadal function to be normalized. Not only do we change gonadal function to be normalized, we change outflow of anabolic hormones to be normalized. We get the anabolic response at the tissues. We get an increase in fat utilization at the tissues. We get normalization of glucose at the tissues. What we also get is we also get a change in stress response. This change in stress response changes cardiovascular dynamics. What also happens, because of the transient mechanical load, we get greater stretches and retractions of the arteries from the transient mechanical load, which leads to an increase in arterial compliance, an increase in cardiac function, which means that the heart works more efficiently, which means that resting heart rate drops. And we get a, de a diminishment in atherosclerotic changes that's not seen with the endurance training. And it has to do with the fact that we do not, and this is a speculate, do not have that same transient mechanical load that we saw with resistance training. The other thing that happens with endurance training 
is that we now have an increase in AMPK. AMPK inhibits the production of luteinizing hormone, LH, which means that we do not get any change in testosterone for the males or, or progesterone for the females, which means there's no real change in gonadal function from the endurance training. However, long-term body mass loss is linked to increases of both testosterone and normalization of progesterone. So now let's take a look at what happens in terms of the adiponectin. Once again, we have two signals here. We have the signal from the endurance training to increase lipolysis because we need to utilize lipids for metabolism for ATP. We also get an AMPK signal. An increase in AMPK signal coupled with the increase in lipolysis causes <coughs> the fat cells to become overly metabolically active. They start to break down all of the lipid tissues. This releases adiponectin, which causes two distinct changes. It can cause a change in food intake relative to two other hormones, leptin one of them, ghrelin another. It changes the outflow from the hypothalamic <coughs> pituitary adrenal axis, changes your stress level, increases the use of lipids at the tissues, increases <coughs> the mobilization of lipids from the liver, diminishes the actual disease state of the liver, it normalizes insulin release, and it normalizes cardiovascular function all by itself. No other signals are needed from the endurance on, on the adiponectin side from endurance training. However, from resistance training, we no longer have that AMPK signal, which means they're strictly looking at what do the signals coming from the muscles tell the fat cells to do. But we still have that transient load issue affecting the cardiovascular. Yeah, question? The beta oxidation is increasing. Fat utilization is increasing. What about the balance of um, most, of, most of what's going on with, with carbohydrate catabolism is, is it's actually going to glycogen, glycogenogenesis. It's actually producing glycogen because most people who are over fat actually have poor glycogen stores because they, because they have very poor uptake of glucose. Because when, when they're in the pro-inflammatory state, when they have high levels of inflammation, they're basically going into glucose sparing at almost all of the tissues in terms of internal, so they don't want to take glucose in. But they, can't, but they can't metabolize the lipids because of the issues of... Do they have keto, ketogenesis taking Yeah, they will have high levels of ketogenesis. However, they will not become ketoacidotic. Um, most often because the ketones are actually being utilized here at the heart or, or in the neurons, actually at the astrocytes within, within the nervous system. Yep. Because because we're we're switching all of the signals here, so the neurons are basically going to utilize more of the ketones that are out there, and the heart cells are going to utilize more of the lipids and more of the more of the ketones for energetic purposes. You're trying to spare protein degradation. The problem with endurance training is that you is that you have protein degradation, which is why for the high for people who recommend endurance training or utilize endurance training, you have to increase your protein intake on the days in which you do endurance training because of the rate of, pro because of, the rate of protein catabolism and you're getting a negative nitrogen balance within the muscles. So you actually cannot get protein accretion occurring. 
However, you do not want to have that same protein balance on days in which you do resistance training. So let's take a look at the inflammatory signals here. So based off of the signals coming out of the fat cells due to the change in adiponectin and the leading to a change in macrophage activity, we get a diminishment of TNF-alpha, we get a diminishment of CRP. There's a variable change in IL-6, and that's where I was talking about that effect size in IL-6, kind of a, a misnomer here. <coughs> IL-6 has multiple functions, and so we may not actually want IL-6 to drop because IL-6 does have some pro-inflammatory issues, but it also has a very good glucose utilization issue, and it has a little bit of anti-inflammatory issue. So we get the drop in TNF-alpha and the drop in CRP. TNF-alpha is going to cause a change in hypothalamic pituitary issue. CRP and TNF-alpha are going to affect the ar arterial compliance issue. CRP gets metabolized within the liver, causing changes within the liver. IL-6 has the liver and causes changes within the, within the metabolism of the liver, leading to an increased fatty acid mobilization and an increase of, of insulin sensitivity. It has to the muscles, increases beta oxidation or lipid utilization. It increases insulin sensitivity and it decreases the rate at which glycogen is, is broken down. So basically what it's trying to do is it's trying to allow for as much glycogen to stay stored as stored possible. All of this leads to a normalization of glucose and increase in the metabolic flexibility. The increase in metabolic flexibility here is all about a reduction in inflammatory state. Um, actually, it's, it's very little. In, in, in the liver. However, it does, it, it's almost all muscle in terms of the, the real change in uh, glycogenolysis. Um, most of the function at the liver in terms of changes of glycogen, glycogenolysis is based off of Cori cycle signaling in terms of where your normal levels of glucose happen to be. So if, if the person be, starts becoming hypoglycemic, then it actually turns to becoming normal in terms of his glycogenolysis as well as his gluconeogenic issues. For resistance training, we see the same exact signal. However, we get secondary IL-6 signals coming from the contracting muscles, and we still get that same transient mechanical load causing changes in the cardiovasculature. So what's the implication of this? What's the take-home message in terms of all of these changes and all of these effect sizes? First, there's a continuum of responsiveness. There's a continuum of responsiveness and a continuum of effectiveness. Because of this continuum, we have to take into account the self-selection behaviors <coughs> that Brock and Garland have, have documented very well as to can we make the exercise event appeasing so that it becomes independent and repeatable. If we cannot make it independent and we cannot make it repeatable, then the person's not going to make the change in the behavior. And what's, what's been noted is that if we can change exercise behavior, we can change nutrition behavior. It's easier to change exercise behavior before changing nutrition behavior than it is to change nutrition behavior before exercise behavior. And it has to do with something I'm going to show you in a second here. For a population, you can expect a 67% beneficial response from resistance training, which means out of the whole population, 67% should respond beneficially to resistance training. 
55% should respond beneficially to a concurrent training, whereas only about 475 to 49% will respond beneficially to either endurance training or dietary training. And it may have to do back to the self-selection issue, and it may have to do with the fact that diets just are not very effective. Changes in body mass should be seen as a cheerleader effect, not as a true outcome measure. Which means that if you're dealing with somebody or if you're working with somebody who's over fat, you should not be putting them on the scale every day or every week unless they want to have a benefit to it. It's one of the biggest issues with all of the extreme weight loss and what's the other one? Um, biggest loser competitions is that all they do is look at, look at what the scale says. And the scale doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't tell you the fact that females are going to respond differently than males. Females respond more to diet than males do. Children, as I told you, I'm not going to talk about it because it becomes very complex, respond to any form of exercise more than they respond to dietary change. <clears throat> the reason why body mass needs to act as a cheerleader effect because it's not about changing body mass. It's about changing these upper regulatory elements. Changing the rate at which the signals are coming from the adipocytes. Changing the rate at which signals are coming from the muscle cells. Changing the inflammatory state. Changing how you're doing metabolism. And once again, you do need to be hypocaloric. However, you do not have to have the most effective hypocaloric mechanism out there to have the most effective program. Because diet by itself is not very effective. It takes about four and a half times the length and duration for a diet to have an equal level of effect as any form of exercise. The continuum of adaptations that we see is based off of one, the type of exercise, and then second, the level of stimulation from that exercise. Where high levels of stimulation, or high levels of, of total stimulation, are greater than low levels of total stimulation. Where resistance training appears to be greater than or equal to the concurrent training, which appears to be greater than or equal to endurance training. Once again, it has to do with how much muscle, act, muscle you are pulling into the activity. And this is the thing that most people have a hard time wrapping their heads around. Low level resistance training stimulation equates level of effectiveness to endurance training, regardless of how you endurance train. And it, once again, it most likely goes back to <clears throat> they have a similar metabolic issue. But once again, we haven't studied it, so we can't state for sure that that's the thing. Second, adaptations are duration sensitive. It takes at least six weeks of continuous training before any effect size goes totally beneficial, which means it doesn't hit that zero point of effectiveness, nor does it go to, I favor not doing anything. The prolonged level of effectiveness wanes with no increase of effectiveness being seen across all measures after 32 weeks. So regardless of what you hear being marketed in the infomercials and when you get bored on the weekend, just turn on any of the cable television, show, uh, television channels. They'll have infomercials on any one of these 
programs. And they'll say, oh, you can get this in two weeks. Oh, you can get that in two weeks. Oh, you can get this two weeks. It takes much longer than that to get that. Part of the issue here has to do with the method of progression and the <coughs> conflation of periodization into complexity, which means that we did not have a periodized program, which means that exercise needs to become both self-sustained and reproducible, and we have to include that self-selection behavioring. Most people who are overfat self-select away from endurance activities towards non-endurance or resistive activities. And it has to do with three distinct genes <coughs> which have something to do with overall metabolic issues of muscle. Part of that has to do with the type of muscle that the overfat person has relative to, the, relative to the lean. And it has to do with the type 2 fibers more than anything else. So when we get into developing <coughs> and designing the exercise program, the first thing here, and this is where most people have that multiple repeated event, is because they don't do this very well. And the people who they work with don't do this very well. Because they say, oh, you need to go lose weight. And so what's the goal? Lose weight. The problem is, is that you have to make goals that are time sensitive and are objectively measured. For over fat people and for people in general who are doing exercise, the first reachable goal should always be performance based. I can do X more pounds on this exercise. I can run five more minutes at this level of speed. The second level of goals should be based on morphological and health status changes because those are not going to occur until you get that six weeks plus. Because effectiveness wanes and because programs need to be continuous, we have to periodize correctly. The periodization based off of level of effectiveness should be blocked. Those of you who don't know what block is, I'll show you what a, what a graph of block means. Basically, we have a chunk of time that we're only going to do one type of thing. Followed by a chunk of time, we're only going to do one type of thing. <clears throat> it should be blocked in four to six week increments where resistance training should be the focus. Within that, we intersperse concurrent training. Because of the level of effectiveness, or the low level of effectiveness that endurance training has, and the low, low likelihood of self-selection towards endurance training, endurance training should very rarely be used alone. Or a low level of resistance training should be utilized in place of doing what is usually referred to as an endurance exercise. So doing a low level circuit training versus doing go run for 25 minutes. <clears throat> Higher levels of total muscle stimulation is desirable where resistance training is at that greater than 75% of 1RM in the hypertrophicated zone. So if we were to block it out, this is a modeled block <clears throat> where we block it out by week where for six to eight weeks, we do whole body resistance training, where we alternate days throughout the week. Followed by block two, where we're gonna do concurrent training. Once again, there's different ways of doing concurrent training. So here we have a circuit, followed by an endurance day, followed by a rest day, followed by a circuit day, followed by an endurance day, followed by a rest day, and then we repeat. Or we have where we do resistance, endurance, resistance, endurance, where we're still doing Instead of doing a circuit interval training, we're still following this whole body resistance training, where, say, like, first day is all pull exercises, 
and second day is all pushing exercises. <clears throat> For block three, we then break up body components where we're going to do all of our upper body lifts, pushes and pulls, followed by all of our lower body lifts, pushes and pulls. Followed by block four where once again we're either going to do a concurrent or we're going to do some sort of circuit. Any other questions that I did not address? This is act, this act, in, ter in terms of sample size for meta-analysis. This is actually one of the larger sample sizes for, for meta-analysis. Most meta-analytical studies usually get down to about six or seven studies that they actually put into the analytical review. Um, it depends on, on, on which on what they're looking at in terms of in terms of selective population. This here has a non-selective population um, disbursement, which means that which means that you can you can utilize it across all of the measures.